Chapter 2 Huron Blut The Audubon Cabinets a la mode on Rue Dauphine would take them if they swore to observe the curfew. They promised they would obey the rules for now, and should they need to break them, they would confer first with the landlord. This last was a shifty whitey who picked his teeth on his thumbnail and betrayed all the worst characteristics of his race, mumbling his demands in a jargon they could barely understand. Their shack within the compound was called Cardinal Cottage and lay only a few yards from the cesspit, but they betrayed no disgust as the Rose took a velvet purse from her clothing and paid the man four guineas, which he promised would be returned in proportion if they stayed less than a month. Jack Caraquazian found the place oppressive, but it had two floors and could be defended. Upon a great obiche sideboard, carved in crude imitation of the Machinois style, he found piles of hand-coloured magazines, dog-eared and dirty from a hundred usings in which were recounted the tales of the chaos engineers in their perpetual war against the singularity. Jack Caraquazian had only seen these recently. Travellers had been bringing them into the terminal, but I had not realised they were so popular. These are real people, are they, originally? He told her that the terminal had been visited twice by what he had taken for a burned-out pilo, who had announced herself as the merchant venturer, Pearl Peru. At both times he retired to his quarters until she had gone. Do you know this particular Pearl Peru? Does she model herself on a V character? Not exactly, was the only answer the Rose would give him then. These characters are followed everywhere now, in the south, both west and east of the river, and for all I know, they're beyond red. For all I know, they're being read beyond St. Louis. Do you enjoy them, Jack? Oh, they're hardly my kind of entertainment, he said. Well, said the Rose, it's worth familiarising yourself with such things, especially if you would know the secrets and comforts of the second ether. You have yet to say where this place lies, he said. Are we not going up to Natchez and following the trace to McClellan? To the gold stains where he had last seen Kalinda de Vero, but dishonoured was unable to follow her. I said nothing of McClellan. She sighed a little. We must find out first if Sam is still with us. Then I suspect we must sweat it here for a while. He slipped off his jacket and, bending to his saddlebag, removed a hammock which he proceeded to sling on the hooks provided above the shack's only door. She could sleep upstairs if she wished. He preferred to swing in the shadows with his Sony handy. Testing the hammock's security, he put the weapon between his teeth and climbed into the net. The rose told him she had her own manner of sleeping and folded herself near the stairs, invisible to the unknowing eye. Before he admitted sleep, he told her that he longed for a place where he might rest in no peace, and which was not the grave. Chapter 3. De Diablo Raube Standing on the roof of Cardinal Cottage, the rose could see beyond the compound wall, where at night the only illumination came from an orange moon, and the guttering flambeau, bubbling globules of viscous chemicals marking the progress of the mechanish engines through streets over which they held unchallenged sway. After a certain hour, the stink of the wheezing, shrieking vehicles became almost intolerable, a mixture of carnal house and overheated electrics. She speculated on the nature of their mysterious attractors, 
the means by which they could draw energy from the air itself. Perhaps Sam Oakenhurst would be able to tell her she had sent out a message to him. Something rolled by, close to the gate. For a moment the air was filled with a marbling of grey, black and blue, which dissipated like a fallen whale. Jack Karakwazian was beginning to lose patience. Now he spent much of his time down at Army Square with a few second-rate players, trying to ease his boredom and one against all hands of Guppy's surprise, the featured game of the old Providence Bar and Grill. Often he would not be back until morning when the curfew ended. He had hoped, he said, never to see another of those drooling mechanish again. He refused to discuss how Sam Oakenhurst could be spending so much time with the Metalloids masters. To keep her hand in, the Rose had set up a few old brackets jars from which she coaxed a fairly complex main play, complete with pseudo-consciousness for most of the elements, including a detailed triple logic frame. With some brackets, she could often get quintuple logic, but for the moment she was satisfied. She played against herself. The setting was the Biloxi Fault, and a universe was called the Grail, which was situated in the second ether and where her adopted home now was. She called her world Sylvania, and it was not dissimilar in many respects to the one she now inhabited, though most of the dramatic instabilities were not manifested there. She had risked a great deal in leaving. Even now there was no uncertainty, she would return with her two charges, the man she herself loved and the man loved by her friend. Excuse me, even now there was no certainty she would return with her two charges, the man she herself loved and the man loved by her friend. By nature more patient than Jack Heraquazian, the Rose began at last to fear that Sam Oakenhurst was no longer alive, and his latest Mishinoir bargain had been for more than his time in his flesh. With slender fingers, she teased up the brackets, turning their fluorescent gases into simulacra of whole universes, whole peoples, near individuals. She considered the dangers of recreating her own past. Chapter 4 Gun Slammer's Choice, in which Mr. Merrick Karakwazian is challenged by a youth from Tennessee, claiming right of dispute by blood according to the laws of his people, but Mr. Karakwazian will have none of it. This scene ensues. The youth, pointing boldly, You were the cold blooded killer who shot my brother in the back up above Natchez on the dark Montana. Karakwazian, politely, if I killed your brother, sir, I had no intention of it. Significantly, he's trying to avoid a confrontation. As a rule, I shoot only in self-defense, and when I draw, it is usually to kill. The youth, waving a huge Olivetti 41D. Shot in the back, you bastard! You damned coward! Karakwazian, softly. That is your opinion, sir. Now I beg you let us discuss this rationally. Will you take a drink with me? What was your brother's name, sir? The youth, defiantly uncertain. Ben Kafka, you should know. He was beating you at drunken jewels, and when he got up to answer nature, you shot him in the back. With what weapon, sir? With a Remington 6040, such as all the V's showed you carrying. I watched Nan Snapper for you for too many episodes not to know what heat you sling. Well, sir, 
It's a pretty well-known fact that I have never been beaten at drunken duels. When was your brother killed, sir? Maybe fall, maybe 90, something. We haven't paid much attention to dates in Tennessee, not for a while, but we still know bloody murder when we see it. And would that have been before or after we got the fault? After, of course. Well then, sir, I guess it wasn't me killed your brother. I did not carry a Remington for two years before the fault, and have not for a score of seasons since. You're a liar! A coward, a murderer, and a cheat! I apologise if by an oversight of mine you have confused me with someone else, or indeed if I did at some time defend myself against the relative of yours. But I cannot accept that last remark, which has to do with my professional honour. He slowly raises his long arm, moves his hand towards his lapel. The boy thinks he's going for his Sony and levels his own huge weapon, but Jack Caraquazian lazily moves his arm back along the bar to its original position. Now the boy will be even less sure what to make of Mr. Caraquazian's next move. I beg you, sir, why don't we sit down like gentlemen and come to an understanding? You're a coward, Caraquazian, and a murderer and a cheat, and if you don't draw, I'll shoot you down where you stand. Well, sit down, I beg you, sir, I intend you no harm, but I always show a would-be assassin the respect of killing him outright. This blood feuding, sir, will not do. I'm not the only one who believes it a poor and unwieldy substitute for the American Constitution. Please, sir, put up your weapon. Whereupon the boy lets off an uneven stream of grey carcinogens which do nothing but blister the paint of the bar and alter the chemistry of some of the drinks, while Jack Caraquazian almost reluctantly draws his Sony and slices twice, leaving a neat cross where the boy's heart once was. He turns away, reholstering his weapon, an expression of grim distaste on his face. And this is no way for civilised men to live. From habit, he orders himself a double acroids.